Well, on February 16th, 2009, in Stamford, Connecticut, one of the most horrifying 911 calls maybe ever made came in. Quote, it's tearing her apart. A 200-pound chimpanzee named Travis had turned on one of its owners, Sharla Nash, and had inflicted such gruesome injuries that it became a, an international news story. I debated if I should put a picture up, but decided not to since she lost both of her hands as well as 80% of her face. And after the attack, it came out that this chimpanzee was much more than a pet to its owners. For years, the relationship between Travis and its owners resembled an almost romantic one, letting him roam free in the house, sharing glasses of wine, and catch this, even sharing a bed. And I know what you're thinking. Why are you starting a sermon with this? What a bizarre way to start a message. Guys, I'm starting with this because the text we're studying this morning shows us what happens when someone gets way too comfortable with something extremely dangerous. The man we meet this morning should have kept something far away, locked in its cage where it belongs, but instead he invites it in and it ends up tearing him apart. Open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. This is, I've actually preached this passage about a year and a half ago in this church. It is, when we decided we're going to do Mark, I've been looking forward to Mark chapter 5. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. There is so much glory in this. So turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, and and when you're there, say nice and loud, there. Good. Mark chapter 5, you're going to need it in front of you. Pull it out, pull it out. All right. Come, Spirit, show us the Son. Mark 5, beginning in verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. Stop there. Now, if we're a first century Jewish audience, this man is as repulsive and reprehensible of any person we could possibly think of. This man was as unclean as one can be. First, he's a Gentile. Garrisons is a a Gentile region, strike one, and it's a big one. But second, in the law, if one ever even touched a dead corpse, They were ceremonially unclean, and they would have to go through a very rigorous cleansing process. This man's living in the tombs. That means he's not only touching dead bodies. Guys, he's living with them. He has made his home next to unclean things. And worse than that, not only has he made his home next to unclean things, it's that unclean things has made him their home. He's demon-possessed. And apparently we know that um, the demon is making him incredibly violent and dangerous. In Matthew's account, we're told that people couldn't even go into that part of the country because he would attack everyone who did. Now, if you study 
demonology or, or the study of demons, which you should only do under very prayerful um, caution, one thing you'll learn is that demons don't just overtake helpless bystanders. It's not that you're just kind of minding your own business, having a nice day, and all of a sudden your head starts spinning and you climb up a wall. That's not how demon possession happens. How it happens is this. Demons grab hold of unrepentant sin, and then they use that sin to gradually increase in influence and power over the sinner until the sinner's body and mind is, in fact, compromised over to Satan. So instead of of fighting it, you embrace it. You indulge it. You celebrate it. And eventually, given enough time, you lose control. So this man is unclean because likely for years he had stopped fighting something and he just accepted it. He enjoyed it. He coddled it. He embraced it. He indulged it. And so what did those around him do? See it in verse 3. He lived among the tombs. Here it is. And no one could even bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. You guys, they tried to shackle him like a stray dog. And note that. People's natural reflex in dealing with sin is always to first use external means. So are you struggling with something? What you need is a new medication, right? What you need is some new friends. Girl, you just need some new shoes, right? You need to try this new diet. Here's a new book. And these guys say, what you need is a new chain. And I know in the Bible, we're Bible people, so when we approach a text, we're thinking, okay, what's the theological context? What's the grammatical context? What's the historical context? But don't miss the emotional context when you're studying the Bible. What is this guy feeling? Because he wasn't born the spawn of Satan. He was a cute little kid at one point. He grew up, I mean, he had parents. Likely he had siblings. He had friends. And then he he started getting involved with some really dark things. And now he finds himself literally living alongside decomposing bodies, going in and out of consciousness as the demon does what it pleases. And the only human interaction he gets is when someone comes to put on a new cold chain. What is this guy feeling? Can you imagine it? You don't have to imagine it. Verse 5 tells us. Verse 5. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was, here it is, always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Point one, my sin has made me miserable. The reason Mark spends almost an entire chapter on a demon-possessed guy is because he wants us to see the blatant, hideous reality of evil. He, he wants sinners to see where their sin leads. And you guys see it in the text. It's loneliness, it's isolation, it's misery. 
I've shared this so many times. One of the tombs, uh, my favorite tombs, my, I don't know if you have a category for your favorite sin. I, my favorite sin, that's the one I coddle most, the darling sin that I just love, is the sin of gluttony. And every time I say that, people laugh and go, man, you, yours is the thing of gluttony. But, but you guys, I'm not laughing because it has made me more miserable than anything else in my life. Nothing has robbed me of more joy than the addiction to overeating and binge eating. So many nights, I mean, hundreds of nights where I could have been alert and alive and vivacious and energetic, I chose a binge and ended up lethargic and sluggish and sleepy and sad and bloated and deflated. And it's made me a crappy dad and a crappy husband as a result. My sin has made me miserable. Can you see how your favorite sin, that that most coddled thing, has made you miserable? How your greed has given you nothing but anxiety and discontentment. How your critical heart has has taken a bright and beautiful world and a bright and beautiful church and just made it dim and black and white. How your porn habit has made you feel like the smallest person in the world no matter what room you walk into. How your selfishness has just sucked the joy and the love and the adventure that filled your marriage a couple years ago. How your obsession with yourself, just self, self, how do I look? How am I being perceived? How that has just made you flat out exhausted at the end of every day. How your sheer laziness, loved one, has kept you from everything God wants to do in and through your life. God gives us an uh, an entire chapter on this guy because he wants us to see That sin will make a person miserable, but more than that, he wants us to see and say, my sin has made me miserable. So church is a safe place. If we can't be honest here, where can we be honest? I want you to be courageous. Raise your hand if you can testify, oh yeah, I can see how a sin of mine has made me miserable. Praise God. Okay, guys, those who raised your hand, you're perfectly positioned for verse 6. You're right where the Lord wants you. And when he, verse 6, that's the demon-possessed man, saw Jesus from afar, I love this, he ran and fell down before him. Do you see that? So instead of falling upon Jesus in attack, like we know he was doing to everyone else, he falls before Jesus in fearful surrender. Loved ones, point two, mercy masters misery. Hey guys, it's, it's time now to get a little rowdy. We're looking at the glory of Jesus Christ, okay? Mercy masters misery. I'm on a campaign to blow up the wimpy, uh, watered-down version of Jesus that so many of us have. The, the Jesus that just loves his enemies and speaks softly and, and sits in green pastures and pets baby lammies all day. Okay, I know that's the Jesus many of us have, but this is a different Jesus in this passage. We know that people can't even walk into that part of the country, and in verse 6 it says, 
before Jesus' sandals hit the sand, the possessed man's knees hit the ground. He's mastering misery. Verse 7, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, Read that back to me. My name is what? Legion, for we are many. Legion was the largest unit of troops in the Roman army. It was a battalion of 6,000 soldiers. So we're not dealing with a demon. We're dealing with an army of demons. And throughout scriptures, demons are all about um, showing off their power. For example, in the book of Acts, seven Jewish exorcists, which I didn't know that was a thing, but seven Jewish exorcists team up to go cast out a single evil spirit. And Acts 19.16 says it, quote, mastered all of them and overpowered them all so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. (laughs) Side note, if you get into a scuffle with a demon and you leave that fight naked and wounded, you lost, okay? Like if the demon keeps your underwear, let there be no uncertainty, you just lost that one, right? (laughs) Okay, so see this. In Acts, one demon strips and beats seven grown men, seven adult men. But in Mark 5, an army of 6,000 demons are on their knees before King Jesus. Guys, mercy masters demons. And not only are they on their knees, check this out in verse 10. And he, now we have clarity, that's 6,000 demons. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Do you know why our culture is so fascinated with the demonic? I mean, just look at the movies coming out this Halloween. It will be demon film, demons, demons. Why are we so obsessed with demons? We're obsessed with demons because it is the scariest thing we can face as humans. It's the scariest thing we can collectively come up with as a culture. It's the demonic. We eat this stuff up because it is the most terrifying thing in human experience. And you need to see this vertical church. The scariest thing out there. The most terrifying thing you could ever face. Times 6,000 is not only on its knees, loved ones, it's begging for mercy from Jesus Christ. This is holy swagger. Mark 5 is the most embarrassing day for Satan Since Genesis 3, when God made him slither on the floor like a snake. I mean, if this were a boxing match, you'd want your money back, right? The bell just rung. Nobody even touched anybody. And you're already on your knees begging for mercy? This is, for the powers of darkness, Mark 5 is just downright humiliating. And it gets even worse in verse 11. See verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, 
Send us to the pigs. Let, let us enter them. Verse 13, beautiful word here. So he gave them, what's that word? Nice and loud, come on, with some authority. Permission. When was the last time you asked permission to go somewhere? Maybe what, 16, 17? You, you only ask permission to go somewhere from someone who has authority over where you get to go. You see, guys, the, the demons, they, knew, they know who's standing on the beach in Mark 5. This is the king of all creation in flesh, and they know that nothing can happen apart from his providential permission. And so they ask for permission. And because he's merciful, even to demons, he grants it. Look in verse 13. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000 rush down the steep bank. Here's a beautiful gospel picture. Into the sea and drowned in the sea. See it, guys. The evil gone. The sin at the bottom of the sea. The merciful master did it in Mark 5, and, and you have to know this, he'll do it in your life also. Come out of the tomb this morning. That's the call. It's very easy this morning. Come out of your tomb. Would you be honest enough to admit with yourself that you're kind of miserable? You're stressed out. You're exhausted. You're just flat out bored to death, like bored beyond belief with life. You're miserable because you're kind of following Jesus, but you're trying to, you're going back to the tomb every night. You're still living in the tomb with your most comfortable and coddled sin. And on the authority of God's word and in the name of Jesus Christ, you can come out of the tomb this morning. He's inviting you out this morning. And if you do that, if you bow before Jesus, and side note, we, we know from Philippians, guys, how many knees are going to bow before Jesus in the end? Every knee. Listen, every knee. So, your knee is going to bow uh, willingly now and receive mercy or forcefully later and receive wrath. But make no mistake, every knee will bow before King Jesus. And if you would hear the word this morning and bow before this Jesus on the beach in Mark 5, like the man in Mark 5, Jesus will do away with your sin or your 6,000 sins in my case. Colossians 2.13 is where we get that. And you, that's us, who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, beautiful word, of all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's Mark 5. Jesus triumphing over evil. Jesus embarrassing evil and sin. Mercy mastering misery. And guys, it doesn't say he just canceled the record of debt. Yeah, he, he canceled my sin. Verse 15 says he disarmed it. Here's a secret you need to know that the devil does not want you to know. You can actually say no 
to your favorite sin. Do you know that? You have the power, like your phone, it, it's, your sin is going to call you. You actually don't have to pick that up. Now, you will. All of us will. That's called Romans chapter 7. Why do I keep doing what I hate to do? But you don't have to. You can have real freedom in the power of the Holy Spirit. As every day you just say, oh, I'm coming out of that tomb again. I'm coming out of that tomb again. Today, loved one, can be the best day of your life if you would come out of your tomb and bow before this Jesus. And if you want to do that, I'll be standing right here after service. I will run out of that tomb with you. It'll be the best day of both of our lives. So my sin has made me miserable. uh, Mercy masters misery. But now back to Mark 5. We've got a situation here. There's 2,000 dead pigs and someone needs to answer for it. Verse 13. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. People came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there. Note that, that's a position of a disciple in the New Testament. Sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and the pigs, verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. There's more begging happening. This time it's not the demon, it's the townspeople. They're begging Jesus to leave. Now there's a lot of discussion as to why exactly they want him to leave. Was it because of the huge financial loss of 2,000 pigs? Maybe. Was it because now they're, they're kind of out of jobs? Possibly. But I think the heart of it, you guys, is these people ask Jesus to leave when they realize Jesus is on a whole other level of power than those demons. They thought, you know, we can kind of control the demons, but that Jesus... That can't be controlled. See, with the demon-possessed guy, at least we know what we're getting. Just don't walk into that part of the area, throw a new chain on him every couple months. Like, we know what we're getting with him. We're all going to be fine, but that, we don't know what to do with that. I mean, we've already lost our jobs. We've lost our possessions. We could totally lose our way of life. No, he's too powerful. He's too unpredictable He's too uncomfortable. And so the townspeople did the math and figured out they would rather have sin tamed than the one who masters sin but can't be tamed. They would rather have sin under control than an uncontrollable Savior. And so they prayed, maybe the saddest prayer ever uttered, please depart. Point three, the the masses are making a mistake. The masses are making a mistake. Do you see the great irony in Mark chapter five? Who's the one actually out of their minds? 
The demon-possessed man is, is sitting at the feet of Jesus. The townspeople just asked the Savior of the universe to leave their sad little town. Who's the one actually bound by their sin? Who does Satan truly have more influence over? Some of us this morning are like the demon-possessed person in the story. You've been coddling a sin and it has made you miserable. I think, loved ones, most of us are the townspeople. Every one of us in 10,000 subtle ways have asked Jesus to leave parts of our lives. Jesus has come to us and said, Luke 18, 22, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Jesus, please leave. That's crazy talk. Jesus has said, Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I love my life. Jesus, please leave. He's come to us and said, you cannot serve God and money, Matthew 6, 24. I'm going to try. Jesus, please leave. He's come to us and said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, Matthew 16, 24. Yeah, I'm not about the denial thing. Jesus, please depart. You see, guys, we've all done the calculation in our minds and come to the conclusion that sometimes it's just better to ask Jesus to leave that part of your life. Sometimes it's better to live with controllable sin than a totally uncontrollable Savior. You know, I'm going to live for my family. I'm going to live for my career. I'm going to live for the next whatever, five years. Bible calls that idolatry. But idolatry is so much more convenient and conducive to the way I want to live my life. So I'll just try to keep my sin as tame as I can. I'll just try to keep that thing at bay. Jesus, you can leave. You see, loved ones, every single one of us is more comfortable with life in the tombs than life at the cross. And we too need to repent. We need to repent Jesus, our Savior, from leaving certain areas of our life. You see, the call is the same for the the demoniac and the townspeople coming out of the tomb. What does that even mean? It means returning to Jesus. It's called repentance. And if you do that, if you ask Jesus to deliver you from your favorite darling sins, if you ask Jesus to forgive you for asking him to leave, unlike the chains in Mark 5, Jesus won't just tame the sin. He will take it away. Micah 7, 19 says he's going to cast it into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far will he remove your sins from you. Repent, call upon the mercy of Christ this morning, and the one you've asked to leave will be back before your knees hit the floor. Let's go to Mark 5 again and see what happens next. Verse 17, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. 
And he was getting into the boat, and the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Now go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Verse 20, And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. I've always struggled with this part of the text. Why does Jesus not let him go with him? If Jesus were doing kind of a, a political campaign, doesn't it make sense? They're like, yeah, hop on the, on the train. Let's go. Be one of my followers. I mean, he's come out of the tomb. He's been freed from his sin. Now, unlike the townspeople, he actually wants to be by Jesus. So why does Jesus say no? In fact, three prayers have been prayed now in Mark chapter 5, and this is the only one that's answered with a no. The 6,000 demons ask Jesus if they may leave, and Jesus says, you may. The townspeople ask Jesus if he will leave, and he says, I'm gone. And now the man who's been saved and immediately transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ asks if he can just go with Jesus, and Jesus says, no. Why? I think the answer is in verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home, go home to what? Read nice and loud. To your friends. We know that everyone knew and feared this man when he was possessed. So what's at home? His friends. People who know him. People who had seen, had a front row seat to what had happened to him. People he couldn't hide from. You see, this man wanted to go on the road with Jesus where his past life of possession and sin would be unknown and hidden. And Jesus says, no, no. I want you to go back to those who know everything so they can see how much the Lord has done in your life and how he has had mercy on you. Point four, mercy makes misery into ministry. What happens when when misery meets mercy? Ministry happens. I've shared this often with you guys at our church, if you're a first-time guest. One of the tombs I've lived in, one of the the tombs I've struggled with as as long as I can remember, is the tomb of same-sex attraction. And I could talk for hours upon hours about how that sinful impulse just made me miserable. The more I tried to coddle it and and love it, the more it made me miserable. And then mercy called my name, and Jesus called me out of the tomb, and he saved me, and he very slowly started weeding out those desires from my heart, and in replace of that, he gave me a beautiful wife, and now three amazing kids, and today, by God's grace, I am not what I was. Praise God. But up until about five years ago or so, only a select few of people in my closest accountability group knew about that, because it's just not something you really talk openly about, right? So I didn't really tell anybody about it, but then the Lord Mark 5'd me. (laughs) I felt it. He said, no, 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 Yeah, you could go and do ministry and no one would ever know about this, but I want you to go back to your friends 
and let them know how much the Lord has done in your life. Let them know my mercy has met you. And so I wrote some articles, and those got published, and literally, guys, without exaggeration, I have talked with hundreds of men and women at this point and been able to call them out of the tomb of same-sex attraction and homosexuality and point them to the master who uh, masters their misery. Yep, praise God. The reason I share that is because the reason Jesus sends the guy home in Mark 5 is to share the tomb so they can see the Savior. And I think he wants to send you home today, too. What's the application of this message? It's, it's actually in the text for us. Verse 19 is how you are to apply this passage. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's it. Sometime this week, sometime this month, tell someone how much the Lord has done in your life. And not some watered-down, generic, you know, I used to struggle with something hard and the Lord... No, no, you got to get specific. They have to uh, see the tomb in order to see the triumph. So So you have to share the specific tomb if people are going to see the specific triumph. So you go, where do I start? Well, start with your family. That's a good place to start. And if they think less of you as a result, good. Now we're getting somewhere. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12, God's power is made perfect in your strength, right? No, no. God's power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, boast all the more gladly in your weakness. Spurgeon said, if any man think low of you, take heart. He doesn't think low enough. (laughs) John the Baptist said in John 3.30, in order for Jesus to increase, I must what? Decrease. So share the tomb this month so people can see the triumph. You might say, well, that doesn't sound safe. Who said anything about safe? Following Jesus isn't safe. Well, you say, that sounds really uncomfortable, man. I got some stuff. Who said anything about comfort? Following Jesus is not comfortable. This week, share your tomb so you can tell his triumph. It won't be uncomfortable. It won't be safe. But Jesus will be magnified and made much of. There's one more thing I want you to see in the text this morning. We actually studied it last week. Look back at Mark 4.35. Mark 4.35 is what we were studying last week. It says this, That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. And then we studied last week, we saw Jesus got into a boat, they get through this crazy storm, it's epic, remember everyone um, almost dies, they wake up Jesus, he stands up, calms the storm, and then today we just read, he gets to the beach, gets off the boat, fights off 6,000 demons, kills 2,000 pigs, gets run out of town by the townspeople, and now look at Mark 5, 21, Mark 5, 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. 
That means Jesus just sailed home. You get it? Loved ones, Jesus went through all of that for one naked, violent, demon-possessed man. Jesus crosses, I mean, we, we studied Jesus calming the storm. No one ever asked, why is he in the storm in the first place? Why did he get into a boat? Jesus crosses a raging storm, a raging sea, silences an epic storm, goes through 6,000 demons, 2,000 pigs, angry townspeople for one naked, demon-possessed guy, and then gets back into his boat and sails home. Guys, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, I don't know if you've ever heard people say, you know, if you were the only person on earth, Jesus would come for you. And I've always been like, what's the verse for that? This is the verse for that. Jesus crossing the sea, crossing heaven itself for one person. God going through natural forces. God going through demonic forces. God going through an angry town, religious people who wanted him to leave, wanted him dead. The gospel is about God in Christ going through heaven and hell just to get to you, loved one. If Jesus would go through all of that for one demon-possessed guy, what won't he do for you, O child of God? This is the gospel. A story I just love to tell. It fits so well with what we're studying here this, this morning. Is, um, in late 1944, Second Lieutenant Hiro Onoda of the Japanese Army was sent to the Philippine island of Lubang to fight World War II. His mission was to resist the American advance, and his order was to fight on indefinitely. Well, we know later in 1945, uh, the war ends, but you guys, Onoda never got word. He was cut off from all communication, and for the next 29 years, Hiro Onoda kept fighting World War II. To stay alive, Onoto uh, stole food from villages at night, but people just thought there was this crazy guy living out in the jungle. But eventually, the, the Philippine government had to get involved because every once in a while, Onada would periodically shoot at a villager, mistaking them as an enemy. So the Philippine government started dropping notes into the jungle with letters and photographs from his family, asking him to come out but he thought it was the Americans trying to trick him into surrender. So the Philippine army carried out loudspeakers into the jungle and shouted, Onada, the war is over. You can come out. He still thought it was a trick. He didn't believe them. Eventually, they flew down his brother from Japan to stand at the microphone and beg him to give up. And they, he thought that he had been captured and he was part of the trick. Again, he rejects the announcement of peace. Guys, Hiro Onada fought World War II until 1974 when he finally laid his arms down after the Japanese government finally sent in his old commanding officer, Major Taniguchi, who ordered him to surrender. Sadly, Hiro Onoda lost nearly 30 years of his life fighting a war that had already been finished. Loved ones, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the note dropped into the jungle this morning. 
The gospel is the loudspeaker carried out on this cold morning to declare to all of us, the war is over. You can come out. You, you don't have to continue to fight your favorite darling sins and your inner demons with just redoubled efforts and new strategies to try to crowbar yourself into place of acceptance before God. Jesus has come. Jesus has made peace with those tomb sins. It's over, y'all. You can come out. Or you can continue to caress those sins and live 20 years, 30 years. Loved ones, this morning, hear the proclamation of peace. Lay down your arms. Come out of hiding. Come out of your tomb. Come to Jesus. Let me pray for us.